Now today, friends, our study brings us to the 34th Psalm. And we're going to be moving along now a little more rapidly, because if we don't, we'll be all summer in the book of Psalms. And I can't think of a better place to be, but we are going through the Bible, you will recall. Now, this is a psalm that we have an explanation, and it's part of the inspired text at the beginning. It says, "...a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed." Now, this is a fine place for me to illustrate something that the critic has used to discredit the Word of God, and it's led a great many uninstructed folks away from believing in the integrity and inerrancy of Scripture. Now, actually, this goes back to an incident that's recorded in the life of David. If you would go back, which we'll not do today, really to the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel and verses 10 through 15, you will recall that Saul was after this man David. And this young man was fleeing for his life. And he was going from one cave to another, hiding. And he was way down in that region of the wilderness, down toward the Dead Sea. And not many can survive in that area. In fact, a bishop from San Francisco didn't make it through that wilderness. I've driven through it. Now, I want to say to you, I wouldn't want to drive through there by myself. Now, David knew it, and he was able to survive in that wilderness. And he was able to hide from Saul. But David grew weary, and his faith got very weak and very thin. And he finally thought, well, I'm going to be destroyed. And he went out of the land into the land of the Philistines, which is way down in that area, but toward the west. And so he got over among the Philistines, and the king there of the Philistines at that time, he received David. And then there were those around him that said, look, David's not your friend. You must remember that back in that land, they've been saying that Saul has killed his thousands and David is tens of thousands. And remember, he killed our giant and we want you to know that when he slew Goliath, he took down a lot of our defense that we had. And he's not our friend. You better get rid of him. David saw he was in real danger. So David acted like a madman, you know, acted like he was absolutely insane. And in that day, there was a superstition about insane people. You didn't destroy them. You had to turn them out, put them out. And that's the reason that you find that man among the tombs, you remember, that was possessed with demons. Freed is an insane man. And David acted like that, and that's the only way he got away with his life. Now, it was that time that God had delivered him, and then he came back in the land and hiding in the cave of Adullam. And I think lying there in the safety of that cave, David said, I should have trusted God. And this is a psalm that comes out of that. Now, if you go back and read the record, you will notice it says Achish was the king. And here it says Abimelech. Now, here's where the critic has come along, and I could quote you several of them that have made the statement that it is quite obvious that therefore this is not an inspired psalm and David this, that, and the other, and this is an error in the Bible. But you see, 
Abimelech was the title of every Philistine king. And Achish was the name of the king. It was just like you have down in Egypt. Every king in Egypt was a pharaoh. But that wasn't the name of each king. But everyone was called a pharaoh. And you have among the Amalekites, every ruler there was called an Agagite. An Agag, it's the royal family. But each one of them had a name. And so, may I say to you, the critic has taken advantage of things like that. And I had a young fellow, when I was teaching, bring this to me. He was greatly distressed. said, I believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures, but here's an error. There's no error at all. It's lack of knowledge in our own minds and hearts. And when you think you find an error in the Bible, remember, the error is not in the Bible. The problem is with you. (laughs) That's the trouble today. It's the problem with the critic. Now, David writes this psalm after that. And he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. When you're in trouble, when you get discouraged, and you're defeated. And that was David. Here he was running and running and running, and it just looked like that never come to an end. And he became discouraged. And he thought one of these days he'd be killed. But now he says, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. And friends, I do pretty good at praising God on a good sunshiny day and things are going right. Very difficult when things are difficult, is it not? But listen to him. I'll bless the Lord at all times. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Now, listen to him. Oh, this is a great statement. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I have thought about taking this verse and putting it on the stationery of the Through the Bible. I want you to join with me in magnifying the Lord because we're going to find out in one of the Psalms that the Word of God and the name of God are just about the same. And both are important. And we want to get out the Word of God because it'll magnify the Lord. And I just like to say to you with the psalmist, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together in getting out the Word of God today. Now, David says, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Now, David, in the first three verses, it's just a praise. This is a hallelujah chorus. Now, he gives us the cause, the reason for his praise. I sought the Lord. He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. How wonderful. And they looked unto me and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his trouble. Can you say that today? Oh, I thank God for the way he's led me. And I'm sure you can, friends. Now, verse 7, "...the angel of the Lord encampeth round about those who fear him and delivereth them." This is the first mention we've had of the angel of the Lord. And there'll be only one other time that the angel of the Lord will be mentioned. Now, without going into any detail today, because I spoke about this back in the book of Joshua, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. You don't see the angel of the Lord after you come to the New Testament because he's become a man. 
And he's no longer an angel, he's a man. (laughs) And when he appeared back in the Old Testament, I think it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here, "...the angel of the Lord encampeth round about those who fear him and delivereth them." And the Lord Jesus said, "...I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I'm with you always." even to the end of the age. And now here's his invitation. David says, If you don't believe this is true, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusteth in him. Oh, happy is the man. Say, there's nothing like trust in the Lord. And this is an invitation. Now, David had been out in that cave and He's an outdoors man. He was rugged. He'd seen this sight. Verse 10, "...the young lions do lack and suffer hunger." He'd even seen little lions, these little lion cubs, hungry, just whining for something to eat. Yet God took care of them. But now he says, "...but they who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing." Now, I tell you, if a lion can take care of a little cub, God can take care of you and me. Isn't this wonderful? This is what David learned by experience. This is putting Christianity into shoe leather today. And we need it in shoe leather. I'm so tired of Christianity today that's just good for Sunday morning service and singing the doxology. And that just about ends it for a great many folk. I love what the man up in San Francisco, he's a broker that wrote to me. He said, And it's one of the nicest things that have been said to me. He says, you do not sound like you're speaking back of stained glass windows. Well, thank God for that. Now, there's nothing wrong about speaking back of stained glass windows. I did that for 40 years. But I hope that it didn't sound like it came from back of stained glass windows. I wanted to get down where it sounds like it came from the sidewalk, the marketplace, and from the schoolroom, and from the office, and the workshop. This thing's got to walk in shoe leather. It's no good. This man David says, I found out this is true, because I experienced it. Taste of the Lord. Now, we read verse 13, Keep thy tongue from evil, and thy lips from speaking God. And I need to learn that. Maybe you need to learn that. But maybe we better move on. Verse 15, The eyes of the Lord upon the righteous... And his ears are open unto their cry. Now, God says he hears and answers prayer. Don't tell me he doesn't, because he does. He knows how to say no. Now, verse 16, "...the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth." I don't have time to go into that today, but there's a lot of sentimental rot in plays where some old, I was going to call him something I ought not to call him, but some low-down sinner, and he has deserted a wife and a little baby. And then after living in sin, a murderer, a thief, and everything else, he comes home when the little girl or the little boy is sick, and he gets down by the bed, and he prays a prayer. And when he does, you can hear boo-hoos all over the audience, people boo-hooing. My friend... I do not know. That turns my tummy. You know why? God says, I don't hear the prayer of a man like this. You have no right, my unsaved friend, to go to God and ask him for anything except one thing. Lord, save me. And you don't even have to ask him for forgiveness. 
I think that little routine they give, forgive me. You don't have to ask him for... He's got forgiveness for you. All you have to do is trust Christ, and he'll automatically forgive you. What he's saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Oh, this is wonderful, by the way. Now, I must lift out maybe one or two other statements. Verse 18, the Lord is near unto those who are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite heart. You're willing to take a place of humility, come as a sinner to him, and trust him. Now, that old reprobate that turned and prayed about the little sick girl, if he'll accept Christ and acknowledge his sin, and he'll receive Jesus Christ, God will hear him. But now, you're not free from trouble. I don't care who you are. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. This psalm is so wonderful, and it's so quoted and misquoted, as you can see. Now, I move along to the 35th psalm. And here is a psalm. David wrote this psalm. And he wrote it during the days of his persecution by King Saul. It goes along with the other one. In fact, you can put 1 Samuel 24 down by this. And it's a powerful appeal to a righteous God to execute judgment upon the enemies of God and the persecutors of his righteous people. Now, there are those that like to say, well, this is not the kind of prayer Christians should pray. And the Lord Jesus never talked like this. He gave a parable about a widow that went to a judge and said, avenge me of mine adversary. And that judge, it took him a long time to come around to it, but he did. And the Lord Jesus is saying, do you think God is an unkind, hard-hearted judge? No, God is gracious and wonderful. And then Paul did say to us, he says, we're to avenge not yourself, brethren. <laughs> you turn that over to the Lord. For vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, you and I are not to take vengeance today. We're to turn it over to God. This is his department. And my friend, he's going to handle it. And he'll handle it better than you and I will handle it. Very frankly, I've turned several people over to the Lord, as far as I'm concerned. I'd like to smack them in the mouth if you really want to know the truth. No use me beating around the bush. I have that same feeling of wanting to hit a man in the mouth. I know one, he's a liar. I know he's a liar. <laughs> and he pretends to be, you know, why am I? How he pretends to be an outstanding Christian, carries a big Bible under his arm. But God told me, he says, Oh, Vernon, don't you hit him in the mouth, because you'll be wrong. You won't be walking by faith. You trust me. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, saith the Lord. So I've turned him over to the Lord. I think the Lord will spank him. I want to say to you, friends, Oh, we need to learn to walk this pathway. But if you think this is out of line here, I think maybe you and I are out of line. Now, this is a great psalm, and I'm going to lift out this part that's the imprecatory prayer. David was in trouble. He was running away from Saul. And Saul, in that chapter 24, he even said to David, when David spared his life, he said, I know you're going to be king. I know God's given it to you, and you are more righteous than I am. Then why didn't Saul bring him back in? Well, he didn't bring him back in. Will you want to listen to David's prayer? Verse 4, 
Let them be confounded and put to shame who seek after my soul. Let them be turned back and brought to confusion who devise my hurt. Let them be as chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. David wanted to turn it over to the Lord too, you see. And here we have the second mention, and these are the only two mentions of the angel of the Lord we have in Psalm 34, then Psalm 35. Let their way be dark and slippery. Let the angel of the Lord persecute them. For without cause have they hid for me their net in a pit, which without cause they've digged for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares, and let his net that he hath hidden catch himself into that very destruction, let him fall. Now, that sounds very extreme. It's an imprecatory prayer. And I think that it may be inconsistent for a Christian to pray that prayer today when he's told us to turn things over to him. But if you have an idea that somehow or another God is not going to take vengeance, and he'll do it without being vindictive, you see. He'll do it in justice and in righteousness and in holiness. You can afford to turn it over to God, and he's going to make things right, by the way. This is a great psalm. It's a great comfort and a solace for the soul of man. Now, listen to David after he prayed that prayer. Verse 9, "...and my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like unto thee, who delivereth the poor from him that is too strong for him, yea, the poor and the needy, from him that spoileth him. David was a very poor man at this time. You'll recall that those that were in debt and those that were in distress, those that were discontented, that three classes of men came to David in that day. He was a sort of a Robin Hood. And I think that the man who wrote Robin Hood got the idea from this man David, by the way. And it was that time that David began to build up an army. But he's just a poor young boy running away, you see. And then there's something very interesting in verse 16. "...with hypocritical mockers and feasts they gnashed upon me with their teeth." They not only did that, but they made fun of David. Now, a mocker in that day was a court jester. And he was hired, of course, to amuse the guests at a banquet. And they were hypocritical. They would come in and make fun of David, running away, hiding from the king and not fighting, you know. He could slay a giant Goliath, but he's afraid of King Saul with hypocritical mockers in the feast. And friends, they are about us today, and you'll find them in the church. I was in the church a long time. I'm not against the church, but I'm in a position to say some things about folk in the church, and it hurts the testimony of the church. And that church is the bride of Christ. And God still has a purpose in the church. And somebody needs today to do some cleaning up on the inside. We're not to judge the world, but we're to judge things inside the church. And there's a lot of this inside the church today. They ridicule God's man. They lie about God's man. And they do it in the most pious way. And they are hypocritical mockers. They are jesters in the court of God today, ridiculing God's men. And that is true. My, this is a great psalm. Now today, as we come to this 36th psalm, and I find now that I'm going to have to increase the tempo here, 
or we'll be here not only through the summer, but through the winter. And I can't think of a better place to be than in the Psalms, but after all, this Bible bus must continue rolling. And in Psalm 36 here, we have actually a picture of the wicked. And David is the author of this psalm, and he begins it with the transgression of the wicked, saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, the Septuagint translation of this, which is the Greek translation made by the Seventy in Egypt, changes that somewhat, and I'm not sure, but what they probably were closer to the original than our translation, and it reads, "...the wicked hath an oracle of transgression in his heart." Now, what is that oracle of transgression that's in the heart? It's that old nature that you and I have, the Adamic nature. And the Lord Jesus said, you remember in Matthew 15:19, "...for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. And this is a pretty ugly brood that come out of the human heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Now, that's quoted by Paul in Romans 3.18. And here is a revelation of the wicked. For you see that out of the heart come these things, and it is, as it were, in the translation we've given, The wicked hath an oracle of transgression in his heart, that old evil nature that we have. And that's the answer, I think, to those who say the conscience should be your guide. Well, the conscience is not your guide. The Holy Spirit is your guide. But your conscience will be a thermometer or a barometer to let you know after you've done a thing whether you should have or not. But the Spirit of God should be your guide. And the conscience is that which will prick you after you've done it. And so there is that old nature that's within us. And there's no fear of God before the eyes of the wicked. They make brave statements today. Now, the next verse indicates that he flattereth himself in his own eyes. And Matthew Henry, in his commentary, has a very interesting statement in this connection. He says, "...sinners are self-destroyed. They are self-destroyers by being self-flatterers. Satan could not deceive them if they did not deceive themselves. But will the cheat last always? No, the day is coming when the sinner will be undeceived when his iniquity shall be found hateful. I think that one of the things that the lost will have to live with throughout eternity is an old nature that he's going to learn to hate. That will be the thing that will make his own little hell on the inside of his skin, by the way. Now, I proceed on here. It says, "...the words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit." I met a man on the golf course, fine-looking man, retired, had had a fine position. But all that his mouth could say was just iniquity. Every breath he uttered was to take God's name in vain. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath ceased to be wise 
and to do good. He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. Actually, in his bed, he plans to do evil the next day. What a picture that we have here. And it's a frightful picture, by the way. Now, when we come here to verse 5, we have a picture of God and what God is. And listen to this. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of man put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Now, these are blessed, wonderful words. And this is the God that man rejects. This is the God that man has no fear of. And the wicked do not know this God. And they do not know what it is to be under the shadow of his wings. And that's the place where the righteous find refuge. I'd like to talk about the wings of Jehovah, but we did that back in the 19th of Exodus when God told Israel, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, we find under his wings there's protection, there's security and rest, and also the warmth of his love. The Lord Jesus, you'll recall, He said to Jerusalem, he said, How many times I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her little ones under her wings, and you would not. And this is the God that many are rejecting today. Now, it concludes with this word, verse 11 and 12. Let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked remove me. There are the workers of iniquity fallen, they're cast down, and they shall not be able to rise. What a picture this is. It's a prayer now. And here in this section, he prays that God will continue his mercy and his grace to him, and he'll not fall under the wicked. I think that's something every believer today, you and I are in a wicked, mean world. And my prayer always is, oh, God, don't let me fall in the hands of the wicked. Now we have in Psalm 37 that we come to now another psalm of David, and it's what is known as an acrostic psalm. That means it's alphabetical in the Hebrew, which would be each verse would begin or a section would begin with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And you'll notice here that this psalm has about 40 verses, which would mean about two verses would take in each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, beginning with Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Galith, and so on, all the way through. We have that today. That's the way we instruct little folk. I remember when I was a little fella, I can still remember the book I got. A is for apple, B is for baby, C is for cat. And there's a picture of each one of them there. My, that was the way we started off. You have that in this psalm here. And this has been a psalm that's been a great blessing to God's people 
down through the years. And so often, though, misapplied. Now will you notice, here he says, "...fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither like the green herb." Now this was something that troubled David apparently a great deal. And we'll find later on that another one of the writers in Scripture, in fact, if you go over to the 73rd Psalm, you will find that Asaph, he faced this perplexing problem, by the way. Now, the reason that you find that here, and especially in the Old Testament, is that God promised the believers in the Old Testament, he promised them earthly and material prosperity. He has not promised that to believers today. Our hope is not on the earth. The hope of Israel was upon this earth. And therefore, when the man of that day looked about him and he saw the ungodly prospering, the fact of the matter is, here was an ungodly man and his fields were producing and the rain came down upon his crops. And then down the road a little ways, some poor righteous fellow was having a hard time. And it was difficult in that day for the godly man to understand it. And David had that. David came to the same conclusion as Asaph did. If you go over to Psalm 73, which we'll not do at this time, Asaph said that at the end he saw what would happen and that the wicked... We're going to be cut down, as we're told here, just like the grass. And you remember a few years ago, and I remember I had people in the congregation, why would God permit Hitler to do what he's doing? Why, he almost won World War II. And why would God permit a man like Mussolini? And by the way, where are they today? You just give God time. He'll deal with them. And it's the end of the wicked that you need to consider. So now, he says, what we're to do if you look about you today. And this is a problem that disturbs you. There's several things if you'll do, it'll solve your problem. First, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Now, this was a promise to God's earthly people. God says to them, you don't worry about the wicked. You trust in the Lord, and he's going to take care of you. Then verse 4, "...delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart." And friends, that was for the man in that day, and it's for us today. But I don't know that he's going to give you an apple a, a day, or I'm not sure that he's going to bless you in your business. But I say this, he's already blessed you with all spiritual blessings, And he'll just shower on you all the spiritual blessings that you can contain. And what are we to do then? Delight thyself in the Lord. That's what we're to do. Verse 5, another thing we're to do, commit thy way unto the Lord. And there are a great many Christians that are criticizing today, finding fault with God. And friends, they haven't committed their way unto the Lord. Trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. Give God time. He'll work it out in your life. God's good, friends. You know, the idea of the heathen is that God's terrible. They're idols. Look at them. Oh, they're hideous. And there are a great many people today. 
and professing Christian that don't think God's very good. They think he's sort of a villain. <laughs> he may turn on you at any moment. He never will. He's your friend. He loves you. He wants to save you. But you've got to commit your way to him, you see. Now, that's not all. In verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Just rest in the Lord. How wonderful it is to rest in him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Don't let him disturb you at all. And then he says, don't get up tight. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't lose your temper. Don't be upset. Don't be under tension. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any way to do evil. Don't think that you can get by with it, friend. If you're his child, you're really in trouble if you try to get by. For listen to him, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. God's going to see to that. And then verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the earth. That's what God has said. Now, God's going to put a people on this earth someday. I heard of a preacher the other day made the statement, God's going to save so many people that there wouldn't be room enough for them on this earth, so he had to have heaven to take care of the overflow. I guess that's what he meant. I don't think he used the term overflow. Well, I want to tell you, heaven is not for the overflow. That's for the church. And there will be an earthly people down here. That is to hopelessly confuse the purposes of God, my friend. Now, will you notice here, the wicked have drawn out the sword. Scripture makes it clear if you take the sword, you're going to perish that way. Now, verse 16, "...a little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked." I have, in the course of my ministry and traveling around, I've been in the homes of very poor saints and also in very rich saints. And my experience has been that the happiest saints are those that don't have so much. God seems to see to that. And verse 20, "...but the wicked shall perish." And you let God handle that department. He's working on that, and he'll take care of it. And verse 23, he says, "...the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord." That is, established by the Lord. "...on a foundation that we've seen is the rock, and that rock is Christ." And he delighteth in his way. Does God delight in you today? He could point to Job, and, and Job wasn't perfect by any means as we saw when we were there. But God took a delight in him. Now, verse 29, again listen to him. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. Now, God is making good his promise to Abraham and to the children of Israel. He promised them earthly blessings. He did not promise that to you and me. We're blessed with all spiritual blessing. And you're going to get all confused if you try to say God has promised you that. Many Christians are being blessed with material things. May I say to you, that's surplus that you get. <laughs> that's an added blessing. And if God has blessed you that way, you have a tremendous responsibility. I feel sorry for some of the rich saints because they're not using the money as they should be using it for God today. Now, verse 37 and 38, Mark the perfect man, that is, perfect toward God in that he's trusted God and rested upon God's salvation. And behold the upright for the end of that man's peace. God will see to that. Verse 38, 
but the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. You mark that down. That's as true as the law of gravitation. And God's going to take care of that department. Now we have in Psalm 38 a so-called penitential psalm. That's what it's called, this 38th psalm. Here we find David in deep distress, and his body is wasting away. We have no record of him having this illness. We've seen before that he thanked God for his healing. And here we have, he said, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Now, verse 4, he says, For mine iniquities are gone over mine head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. And you and I can't bear our burdens, friend, not the burden of sin. Now he says, My wounds are repulsive and corrupt because of my foolishness. I'm troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are filled with the loathsome disease. There's no soundness in my flesh. I had a doctor in the first church I served call me into his office one day, showed me this psalm. He says, You know, there are many people believe that David had a venereal disease. He said, I don't. But he said, I was told that in medical school. And he asked me what I thought. Well, I don't think he did. And I think that the Lord Jesus did not have all the diseases. There are those today that take the position that the Lord Jesus Christ, in bearing our sin, also he was diseased. And I want to say to you, that is so untrue. In his birth, it was that holy thing that shall be conceived. And God said of his earthly life, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when he came to the end of his life, he says, Which of you convicteth me of sin? And he was said to be holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And he was holy when he went to that cross. And in those first three hours, man did his worst. But God, in the last three hours, did his best for Christ, took upon himself the sin of the world. Now, we need to be very careful here. It was the sin of the world that he took. And when it says he bore our diseases, it's the disease of sin. And you want to know the answer to that? Listen to Simon Peter. And I think he knew what he was talking about when he says in 1 Peter 2, 24, "...who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed." What, of disease? No, of sin. He bore our sins... And he did not have a diseased body because disease is the result of sin. And my friend, there was no sin within him. He was a sacrifice that was perfect that went to the cross. It's an awful thing to say Jesus Christ had every disease on the cross. It's a frightful thing to make that statement, by the way. Now, friends, we come to the 39th Psalm. And this is quite a remarkable psalm because it reveals to us the frailty and the weakness and the littleness of humanity. It reveals the vanity of human existence. 
as this psalm will set it before us. This is a psalm that has been used at funerals a great deal, and it can be used there properly. So, And there have been those that have considered it probably the most beautiful of all elegies in the Psalter. And Dean Peroni says the holy singer had long pent up his feelings, and though busy thoughts were stirring within him, he would not give them utterance. He could not bear his bosom to the rude gaze of an unsympathizing world, and he feared lest, while telling his perplexities, some word might drop from his lips which would give the wicked an occasion to speak evil against his God. And when at last, unable to repress his strong emotion, he speaks to God and not to man. It is as one who feels how hopeless the problem of life is except as seen in the light of God. And he talks of this frailty and sinfulness and weakness and littleness of mankind with deep conviction here. And very candidly, human life is without doubt the most colossal failure in God's universe. And apart from a relationship with God, friends, it's rather meaningless. All is vanity. That's what you have to say under the sun. Without the Son of God, it means nothing at all. Now, we notice something new in this psalm. It is a psalm of David, of course, but it's to the chief musician, even to Jeduthun. And who's Jeduthun? Well, it's apparently dedicated to him. Maybe he wrote the music for it. At least he was the one who played it. That is, he's one of the three musical directors or choir directors that there was in connection with Israel's worship. Asaph was another, and Heman. In other words, David had associated with himself. He was the sweet singer of Israel, and he had associated with him these men. Now, will you notice this psalm? It's a beautiful, lovely thing. He said, I said, I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. David said, this is a subject I would rather not talk about with the man of the world. He couldn't quite understand it. And so David says, I put a zipper on my mouth. And he says, I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. But he wanted to say something. And finally, he just opens his heart before God. And he says, My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then spoke I with my tongue. But who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Lord. Listen to him. Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am frailty of man. He said, what's the purpose of life? What is it that gives meaning to life? That's probably the thing that this new generation, this young generation today, 
has come up with, and they've done it with a bang. They've asked the question, because after World War II, that generation, my generation, just wanted to settle down in peace and have a nice little bungalow and a car in the garage, two cars and a chicken in the pot. We wanted to live in an affluent society and shut our eyes to everything, escape responsibility, and we got tied up in traffic snarls. We got under tension and all that sort of thing. And the young generation came along, even in Christian homes, and they looked around and they said, Is this what life is all about? That's what David is saying here. What is the meaning of life? My friend, Christians can live today in such a way that there's no meaning to life. And this is good for fathers and mothers today. Are you living your life as a Christian in a way that you're turning your child on to Jesus? Are you turning him off to everything? There's many a little hippie running up and down this country today that's got in a lot of trouble. And he came out of a good home. We say it's a good home, and to all outward appearances it is. But you see, the young person looked at that and said, there's no meaning in the way they're living. This is a tremendous psalm here. And he said, Lord, make me to know mine end. Give me purpose and meaning, and the measure of my days what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine age is... Nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. That means stop, look, and listen. Think this over, friend. The brevity of human life down here ought to tell us something. Actually, if this life is all that there is, I'm very frank to say that human life is a colossal failure. I'd rather be a dinosaur. I'd rather be a redwood tree and hang around a little while. May I say to you that if this life is all, man's life is just a handbreadth, the psalmist says. Verse 6, Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Thackeray, and he was a Christian, wrote a novel called Vanity Fair. I enjoyed that a great deal. What a brilliant satire it is. This little group of people, little clique, they had their status symbols, played their little part, committed their little sins that were awful, a stench in heaven, and they lived and died and had their littleness and their bickerings and all of that. And that's life, friends. May I say to you, surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. And just think of the Christians today that gather a fortune down here, and some don't gather maybe so much, but they leave it to be spent by godless children or offspring or relatives, and they get it. Or they give it to the wrong thing in Christian work. By the way, we see a great deal of that today. And the psalmist saw that. He said, what's the purpose of it all? Listen to him now, verse 7. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope's in thee. Huh. He's turned out of God. And friends, 
You don't turn to him, you're not going to find the meaning to life. I'll tell you that. Listen to him, verse 8, Now deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I want to be a good example, David says. I was dumb. I opened not my mouth because thou didst it. He said, I didn't want to express my thoughts to the crowd. They're rather pessimistic, are they not? He says, remove thy stroke away from me. I'm consumed by the blow of thine hand. And he was feeling the discipline of God in his life. And it was for a purpose. Oh, my friend, today to get a proper perspective of life, the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art to dust returning was not spoken of the soul. Man today is going on a long journey. Eternity's out yonder. What glorious anticipation there should be. Now he closes, verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I'm a stranger with thee and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. I'm just a pilgrim and stranger down here. My, we like to get in our little corner down here and fix it up and think it's going to be permanent. And we get our little blanket and we get our little false security down here. May I say to you, the best we are, we're a pilgrim and a stranger down here. And that's the way we ought to live this life, friend. Just a pilgrim and a stranger down in this world. And we're journeying. We seek a city whose building maker's God. Oh, to have a hope. And the psalmist says, My hope is in thee. And now listen to him here. Oh, spare me that I may recover strength before I depart and am no more. He says, Enable me in my life down here to so live that I'm going to cause men and women to think of eternity and that I'll not cause a generation to become hippies. And I'll not turn men off from God, but I'll draw them to God. We hear a great deal today about personal witnessing. But what about our lives? Are people turning to God because of the way we are living? Or are they turning away from God? And I'm confident they're doing one or the other. Maybe we better move on. This is a tremendous psalm, is it not? Now we come to the 40th psalm. And we have here two Messianic Psalms that will conclude this section here, the first section, the Genesis section. And they're very wonderful Psalms, and the reason they're called Messianic Psalms is because they are so quoted in the New Testament. And that makes this one especially important, by the way. Now, let me get into it. 40th Psalm, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. And this is a proper psalm, I think, to follow the 39th. All of these here go together, you know. That is, we had a section in with 39. But there is a continuity that follows through here. And there are those that feel that it's just the experience of David and that it describes his flight from Absalom. And I'm of the opinion that that is accurate as far as it goes. But here is a psalm that is quoted 
in the New Testament. It's quoted in the epistle to the Hebrews in a most remarkable way. And so we find here that in this psalm he celebrates in praise here, in thanksgiving, the resurrection and the triumph and the ascension. Who's doing that? Well, the Lord Jesus himself. This is truly a messianic psalm, and as we've said, so quoted. He celebrates his resurrection, his triumph, and his ascension. And this reveals that the death of Christ was not actually a defeat at all. It was a great victory. Now, he says, "...here I waited patiently for the Lord, and climbed unto me, and he heard my cry." A cry was from the cross, by the way. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, established my goings. The horrible pit. It's called the pit of destruction. And it's the place of agony and death, the place that he went to. You and I cannot even conceive today of how terrible the death of Christ really was. Verse 3 and he hath put a new song in my mouth. Now, here's that mention again of the new song. That's the song of redemption, as we've already seen. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. You see, what are they going to see? Well, they're going to see the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, will you notice? He said, Blessed is that man who maketh the Lord his trust, and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Blessed is the man that will put his trust in the Lord. And our Lord Jesus was an example in that, by the way. And he says, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonderful works which thou hast done, thy thoughts which are toward us. And God's revealed what he thinks of us by sending his son, to die on a cross on this little world. They were arguing today about whether any of these other planets are inhabited or not by creatures, intelligent creatures. Now, if I may just voice an opinion, and I'm no expert, of course, in a field like this, I think they're inhabited. But I'll guarantee you this, there'll not be a cross on any one of those planets out yonder in space. Here's where he put up a cross, and he did it. Why? Well, many, O Lord, my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are toward us. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. But he's going to declare one now, and this is the one that is quoted in Hebrews. Will you let me read this now? Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it's written of me. I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not restrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. Now, this is quite a remarkable section here. And he goes on to say, I have not hidden thy righteousness within my heart. 
I've declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the congregation. Now, this is really a marvelous psalm that follows the other one that reveals the frailty of man. It reveals the fact that when he came to this earth, we're told, "...sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened." Now, that's a strange thing. So when I go over to the 10th chapter of Hebrews to pick this up, I begin reading at verse 5. And will you notice what is said here? Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Now, wait a minute. Is this a mistake? There are those that would say, oh, here is an error and a contradiction in the Bible. It's not accurately quoted. Well, the Holy Spirit wrote it, and the Holy Spirit has a perfect right to change his own writing. But always note that there's a purpose for it. And so I'd like for you to see something that I think is quite wonderful. You'll recall that when we went back in the book of Exodus, we were told in Exodus 21 a law concerning servants and masters. Now, if a man became a slave of another man, at the end of that period, however long it was, he'd go out free. But suppose during that period that he would meet some other slave, a woman, that he fell in love with, and he wanted to marry her. And he did. He had children. Now, when the time for him to go out free, he can go. He can leave. But she can't. She's a slave. He can't leave. Now, what can he do? Well, if he said, I love my wife, I'm not going to leave. He'd go to his master, and his master would back him up against the door post, and he'd take an awl and bore his ear through. That was the thing that was done. And it was something that was quite interesting. Verse 6 of Exodus 21 Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or unto the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now, the psalmist, when he quotes it, he says, Mine ear hast thou opened. He came down to this earth. And what did he do? Have his ear dig? No, he was given a body. (laughs) He took upon himself our humanity. He identified himself with us, and he became a servant, and he became a sacrifice. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. God didn't delight in all the offerings in the Old Testament. They pointed to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now will you notice something else that is said. Over in Isaiah, we come there to the 50th chapter, verse 5. Listen to this. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. And that verse is in the one concerning the humiliation of the servant that came down to this earth. May I say to you a prophecy of it. Now, the Lord Jesus came down to this earth, became a man, went to the cross. His ear wasn't big. He was given a body, and that body was nailed to the cross. And he's taken a glorified body with nail prints in it back to heaven. And he will bear those nail prints and scars 
throughout eternity, that I might be presented without spot and blemish before him. This, my friend, is a messianic psalm, a psalm that reveals the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd love to stay with this psalm. I want to say a word now in closing about the last one in this section. It's the 41st psalm now, and when we come to it, You'll notice it opens with, Blessed is he that considereth the poor. And the last verse of it is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And that word we've seen means happy. This section, the Genesis section of Psalms, opened with happy. It closes with it. And we have here a Messianic psalm. And what does it have in it? Well, it has in it the betrayal of Judas. And in verse 9, we read, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Now, that is the one that is so quoted of Judas and was quoted in John 13:18, And this was fulfilled in Judas. And that makes this a messianic psalm. But we have something else here. Notice verse 10. But thou, O Lord, be merciful unto me, and raise me up, that I may requite them. We have his resurrection here. Listen to this. And raise me up, that I may recompense them. You see, in this Genesis section, we've had the death of Christ. We've also had the resurrection. But you see, the death of Christ, and let me make this rather startling statement, the death of Christ saves no one. It's the death and resurrection of Christ that saves. The resurrection is important. What is the gospel? Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, according to Psalms. That he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That is part of the gospel, the resurrection. And without it, there is no gospel. Now today we're seeing again unbelievers talking about Jesus. They all have to have an opinion of him because it's that way. Whom do man say that I, the Son of Man, am? And you've got to have an opinion. And today, even in these modern plays about Jesus, they always leave him on the cross or leave him in the tomb. Thomas Jefferson left him there in his moral teachings of Jesus. He leaves him where it says they rolled a stone. There's no gospel there, my friend, when that stone was rolled away and he came out. That is what we have, the resurrection. Then we can say here in a wonderful way, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting unto everlasting. And we have a double amen. Amen and amen, which means he put the finishing touches on our salvation. And when he rose from the dead, he ascended back into heaven and sat down because he'd finished it for us. And friends, you don't have to add anything to it, but don't take away from the gospel. He died. He rose again. And without that, there is no gospel today. How tremendous this section is.